0: This is John Wetton from Asia, you're listening to Iron City Rocks.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. Iron City Rocks podcast is a podcast devoted to promoting Pittsburgh's rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music scene. Episode 63, we had the awesome opportunity to speak to Asia's founding vocalist and bassist, John Wetton. Asia will be coming to the Carnegie Library on August 12th, which is this Sunday night, to play a special show uh the original lineup so you're really getting a a great version of asia not a watered down version whatsoever so john Wetton was uh available to speak to and eric uh from our team got a chance to talk to him earlier this week so to get you in the mood for some asia i'm going to play a little heat of the moment followed by don't cry and then we'll get into the interview with eric and john
2: have on the line today the legendary john Wetton from the band asia it is our honor to talk to john he has a storied career that spans nearly uh, 40 years and uh it's great to have you on the line john thanks for coming on okay um
0: yeah good good to be here
2: yeah yes um there's uh there, there's a lot going on i know with asia the tour is going well and uh so we thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and i yeah, uh, wanted to catch up with you Yeah, good. My pleasure.
0: Uh, uh, Actually, I'm in New York City at the moment. We just played in uh, New Jersey last night. Uh, We're sort of completing the Eastern Seaboard before we move across into the uh, the next phase, uh, which will be Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Buffalo. Um, And then we move even further west, and then we end up on the west coast. Uh, beginning of September, we end up in Seattle. In fact, uh, beginning of September, so it's a fairly comprehensive nationwide tour, um, and it's the first one that we've done as a summer tour, which is which is great. You know, uh, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough market out there at the moment. I can tell you that we're being very realistic about it. Lots of people are cancelling, and it's a you know it's a it's a, it's a tough time to tour, but we we're, we're really having a good time.
2: That's great. Yeah, now you've you've been doing music for a long time and um I'd like yeah. to talk a little bit about your, your musical history and um uh, so um like what what got you started in music and uh, also into the bass guitar?
0: Um well yeah bass guitar is a bit of a prop really because I am um, my like my brother is a church organist and choir master and always has been and he always aspired to do that even when we were children. Uh, and so he was busy practicing organ music at home. And um, so uh, I, I grew up in an atmosphere where was, you know, that, that kind of music was very chordal, very melodic music was floating around the house all the time. And um, my brother would ask me, because he was practicing organ parts on the piano, he'd get me to play the bass pedal parts. So I got to see the relationship between the bass part. Within the chord and its relationship with the melody line, uh, so it gave me a fairly good understanding of, of music. I mean, uh, that sounds that sounds quite trite to 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 put it that simply. But um, it, over a period of years, it gave me a very good understanding of what the basis of music was. Um, when I got to the age of about eleven or twelve, I realised that I was never going to be as good as him uh, at this uh, at that kind of music so I kind of uh, I was listening to the radio a lot more and guys that I knew were, were forming guitar bands and so uh, I kind of drifted into that and away from the keyboard and into the guitar but I took what I'd learned that was kind of the, the, the stuff that was in my heart was the English church music and uh, and leaning towards classical music which had never left me and that's really what I took into uh, into music um, Bass guitar. Yeah, as I said, it was it was kind of a prop. It was uh, if you sang, it was a lot easier to play bass than it was to to play guitar at the same time. But for me, it formed an integral part of the of the musical um, the musical story of a song, if you like. Which is, it, it, it for me, is totally the relationship between the bass part and the melody part within the chord that's being played at that time. So uh, my fascination is with, with chordal music um, and has been from the beginning and is to this day. If I, You can usually tell a chorus that I've written because it, the, the, the melody line will be either in parallel to the bass part or it'll be in counterpoint to the bass part. Um, and even with something from King Crimson like Easy Money, the chorus of Easy Money is, is just a, a parallel vocal and bass um, um, uh, formation, and <clears throat> you take that to 1982, you can see it in Heat of the Moment, and you take it up to our latest album. On the go, it's there as well. So it's something that's never really left me. When I joined Asia, when actually when I formed Asia with, with Steve Howe, um, I the person that was mooted for our keyboard player, Jeff Downs, uh, I realized the day that I met him that he came from exactly the same background. Hmm. So the reason why our songs kind of mesh so well is because we come from that same school, basically. So if he writes a chorus or I write a, um, a verse, or vice versa, if I write... The chorus and he writes the verse, and there's a fairly good chance that they will <laughs> they will fit together.
2: You make so a good that's team. That's
0: how that's how our, our musical understanding was formed, um, and it it goes back to really to both of our childhoods. And
2: that's 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 very different than what a lot of people say. You know, a lot of people say, "Well, boy, I grew up listening to R and B, or I listened grew up yeah. listening to the Beatles, or or whatever." And, and and I'm sure you did that too. But I mean, but yeah, a, definitely. Uh, but it
0: wasn't until it wasn't until the Beach Boys. And the Beatles came along, but suddenly I realized that, that you could apply that kind of knowledge to, um, to, to rock music. Right. Um, because, i never forget it. The Beatles, the Beatles came along and they showed me that you didn't have to have some kind of, excuse my word, but an asshole at the front surrounded by musicians playing instruments. You could actually have the writers, singers playing their instruments too. (laughs) Okay, no one ever thought of that before, you know. Sure. Um, But, and there was a kind of competition between the Beatles and the Beach Boys at that time to see who could orchestrate, who could come up with the most daring, melodic sort of forays. I'll never forget one night when my entire world changed. I was listening to Radio Luxembourg on on a cheap transistor under my pillow at night time, and I must have been about 13, I suppose, at the time, 13 or 14, maybe, and <coughs> suddenly, God only knows, came on the on the radio, the Beach Boys, yeah. and <laughs> I thought, okay, <laughs> so this is what I'm going to do now. This is what I'm going to do. And it just it changed my world from black and white, from monochrome yeah. to color instantly. Wow. I thought, wow, yeah, now anything's possible. That's and, amazing. And uh, it was really, you know, just around about that time when London exploded into uh, the sort of progressive music heaven that it was during the 70s and um, it it was quite a fantastic uh, very um, liberating experience to be in London at that time. It was like a little village really as far as music was concerned Uh, and everyone seemed to be doing something really exciting and meaningful and the music was was going anywhere that anywhere any that it wanted to go. It was fantastic. There were no kind of rules. You could you could have. Um, I mean, you could go to the marquee, for instance, and you could see King Crimson, Jethro Tull, <clears throat> the Nice, <clears throat> all in one week for about you know fifty cents. You know, wow. uh, and <clears throat> on Sunday they would be the Average White Band, and <laughs> you know, it was all kind of mixed up, and uh, it was lovely. Just a, just a huge kind of musical. Festival all the time. It was a great, great time to be in London at, at that time, and of course a lot of really good bands came out of that, out of that experience. You know, the um, even some of them are still around today. Sure. Um, but the one that came out that uh, came from the same town as I did was King Crimson, and right. there was always there was always going to be some kind of uh, opportunity that I was going to work with them because uh, I'd known Robert Fripp since I was 15 years old,
1: and um,
0: we had a kind of understanding. And uh, He'd asked me to join King Crimson in 1970, and I, uh, the reason he'd asked me was because he was kind of outnumbered by people who weren't thinking the same way he was. Right. He, he was looking for an ally. Uh, he was against the ropes, and he needed help, and I didn't feel that that was the right... Motive for me to be joining the band, so uh, a year later, the whole thing dissolved, and, and he wanted to start it all over again with a completely different lineup and that was the time when i when I said, yeah, I think' it's, this is going to be all right now,
2: now how um, did, uh, i'm sorry sorry go, on, go uh, on. I was going to ask you how does how did King Crimson differ from some of the other bands you had had worked with like I know um, I believe it was Bill Bruford that said uh, when he joined King Crimson he had been given. Um, instead of a set list, he'd been given like a required reading list, and he said something about this is going to be more than three chords and a pint of Guinness. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, the, the um, I mean, the age-old question: as soon as any band gets into a rehearsal, is uh, who's got the song? <laughs> you know, um, and there was no, never ever that sort of question when we when we went into a King Crimson rehearsal. There was always. A lot of material going around. Some occasionally would be a formal piece, which would be brought in by Robert. But the rest of the time, it was open to um, anyone. You know, the, the the really the rule in King Crimson was that any one of us could do anything, anything they wanted at any given time, and the rest would support him. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the kind of that, that was the rule of thumb. That applied to being on stage. That applied to being in the studio. That really, you know, the if you had an idea and you wanted to run with it, the rest would support. And that's a, that's a pretty pretty good ethos for a band to have. Absolutely. Um, but it, it requires total support of, of one person going out on a limb. It doesn't matter which person that was. Uh, we would uh, we would allow that um, idea to be given life and support it as much as we could and wait for such a time... That the others would join in. And I think it's quite a lovely kind of utopian, I admit utopian ethos, but but, laudable all the same. Um, anyway, yeah, for me it was a very, very enjoyable time. For instance, um, there was one tune that I brought in which was called Starless. And when I brought it in, nobody was even slightly interested in it. <laughs> I was quite sort of crestfallen because I thought this is not. This is not the way that we'd agreed it, you know. But anyway, I put it in my back pocket, and uh, I wasn't too upset about it. And then a year later, a year later, we are in rehearsal, and I think it was Bill Rufin, it might have been Robert Frick, but someone said, that that song that you had last year, um, why don't we just have a look at that again? I I mean, so I said, you mean this one called Starless, you know. And they say, Oh yeah, that's great, that's great, let's work on that. But <laughs> I pulled it out last year and nobody wanted to know about it. Anyway, so that's how come Starless came to be the on the album after Starless and Bible Black. It was intended to be the title track of Starless and Bible Black, but in fact, you'll find it on Red. Um,
2: oh, okay. And that's, that's, that's
0: the kind of thing that, that would happen every day with King Crimson. You know, it was, uh, it was not predictable, put it that way.
2: Right. Is, um, is that part Organized of. Organized the...
0: chaos, I would believe it has been called many times.
2: Right. And is that sort of the reason, I, I guess that's one of the reasons why the King Crimson existence was, was improb- well, probably not anymore, but was sort of tumultuous?
0: Yeah, I mean, on stage, we had um, a set which was 50% improvised. You could do any, the, the same ethos applied. you could do anything you want at any given time, and the rest was support. So, you could go out on a limb and start playing a pentatonic scale, and everyone else would clock and, and that and start playing with you on a pentatonic scale, and nobody would be quite sure whether the music was arranged or whether it was improvised. So... At any given point, then someone could give a signal and we would go into a formal piece. So, for the audience, um, they never really knew where we were. You know, um, they would suddenly get a piece out of nowhere that, that they knew. Uh, so they weren't quite sure what was improvised and what wasn't. Uh, we were the only people that really knew what uh, what the score was. But um, you wouldn't be allowed to do that these days. I'm pretty sure that an audience wouldn't endure that kind of stuff
2: no not, um, not anymore people's taste they're on the
0: hits these days don't
2: they right yeah pretty much uh, unfortunately that's the way things have gone yes it's true but, but in
0: those days in 1970s it was it was okay I and mean, mm-hmm. it was uh, King Crimson was I think the best exponent, certainly from our side of the Atlantic the best exponent of that particular genre there are other people doing it here there are other people Kirby Hancock um 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 Malvishian Orchestra were doing this same kind of thing, but not um, not in a well, now i make up the woods um, But it, the, the the public seemed to like it in America quite a lot. Um, sure, it was a great, great period for me. I loved it, loved it. And I wish it could have gone on a bit longer, but it didn't. It ended in 1974. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, great hopes that it would go on much longer. In fact, uh, it was a bit of a shock when. Um, Originally, it was suggested by Robert that we took a year away from touring and recording. And I, I felt we were just getting into our stride, you know. Right. But before, we've been going for like two, two three years. Um, but anyway, that would be... Uh, I was—I kind of filed away in my head that, that Bill and I would work together again at some stage. Uh, but in the meantime, I just took on um, paying gigs, which is what, you know what one has to do when, when when one's not working in one's ideal band. Um, I worked with Rocks Music, kind of fell into that. I worked with Uriah Heat, uh, with Burn Ash. Uh, and then when the time was right, we uh, Bill and I formed UK, which was supposed to be um, a kind of extension of where we'd left off with King Crimson. Uh, Bill brought in the person that he most wanted to work with, which is Alan Holdsworth and I brought in Eddie Jobson from my experience with Rocky Music, and that's how UK was born. Um, But, uh, yeah, it was never the same, because we'd moved on, and the industry had moved on as well, and and the audience had moved on. It was a totally different time. Punk had happened, New Wave had happened, and uh, at that time, punk was saying, well, it's the death of of bands like Genesis and... uh, And King Crimson and yes, and Pink Floyd. Sure, it wasn't. It wasn't (laughs) by any means. Those bands went from strength to strength. The antithesis Uh, of
2: what you were doing.
0: Yeah, but uh, it did. It affected the way that audiences perceived um, music, and the industry grew up. A big uh, took a big jump into. As soon as uh, as soon as music started to be associated with film, some bright spark realised that you could sell lots more records if you had that uh, precious single on a uh, on a movie. Right. So then, when that happened, mov- uh, movies took record sales into the stratosphere. Suddenly, it was no good to sell thirty thousand records like King Crimson had and you had to sell three million and uh,
2: or you get cut from you, the label. That's
0: what you're competing against, you know. Right. So um, as soon as the 80s happened, uh, that's what happened. You know, in the aftermath of, of what had happened with punk um, or new wave, should I say, then the the, the business suddenly grew up, you know, and uh, it was propelled into the stratosphere as well, I like, could make out. And Asia became that. And, mm-hmm. um, we became a kind of potted version of what everything I'd done before. There's no difference between what Asia was doing and what King Crimson was doing. The only difference was there was no extemporized eleven-minute version of the four-minute song that I had brought into rehearsal. That's the difference. Um, with King Crimson, I brought in a three-minute song called "Stylus," which ended up being an eleven-minute epic on the on the Red album. With uh, with Asia, all I brought in was the three-minute version of each of the moment. There you, go. Mm-hmm. you know, the same thing, really. It, it it has a very, very similar chordal bass there, which is kind of what how we started out this conversation. It's based in church music. Right. Um, but you can apply that to rock music. You can take church music chords, put them into rock music, rock music and suddenly they sound, really, they sound great, you know. Um uh, Procol Harum did that to great effect, of course. Um, but plenty of plenty of bands have used that. Um, but I think it's gen- generally it comes from um, European um, influenced bands. But American uh, music tends to be more uh, blues based. Yes. It comes from a blues um, core. So European music doesn't have any of that. History; it has only classical music to draw on, but we have, you know, five, six hundred years of it ingrained in us. Uh, so when you put um, this sort of wealth of European choral knowledge in, and then you you, you mix it with American R and B, what do you have? You have progressive music.
2: That's yes. As simple as that. It's you the next logical that. step. Yes.
0: Yeah, that's it. You know, you take you take something that really would be nice and, and, and melodic and and, um, and and kind of pastoral, but you put um, rhythm with that, and suddenly it takes on a life of its own and it becomes quite exciting. That gives you, yes, that gives you Genesis, that gives you Pink Crimson, basically. You know, um, I think it's, uh, well, that, that's that's how I see it, anyway. I I, I think that Geographically, we were lucky to be influenced so much by American music, because you take you go to France or Germany; they're not they, at that time, around about the 60s, they didn't have that much influence from America because of the common language. We we get lots and lots of American influence in, in the UK, um, but we also get bombarded with stuff from Europe as well. So we were right in the middle.
2: Get the best of both. <laughs>
0: And I think that, that, that it, it does explain that sort of explosion of music from London in, in the, the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. It was all kind of drawing on all of those influences from the East and from the West for us. Um, so uh, thankfully, I was right in the middle of it. Um, but as I say, it, it's the, the chordal bass that gave at the moment only time will tell it they're the same it's the same cordal base that gave you starless and uh plenty of that seventies stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now now as far as um the actual formation of Asia and uh the way it worked in the eighties and all that, can you talk about that a little bit, just what, what type of experience sure, before, that was yeah. and everything?
0: <clears throat> well it started out with um I had a uh, Um, very strong relationship with with an A&R man from Atlantic Records called John Kolodna and he always wanted to do something with me uh, the first time I met him was in 1975 I think with Roxy Music and Santa Monica and he just gave me his card uh, asked me to have lunch with him the next day which I did and he gave me the best pep talk of all time and said what are you doing with uh, Roxy Music you can do you could do so much better than this, and uh, if you ever consider doing something, um, please let me know. And he would—he encouraged me at every corner. He was very, very, very good. Um, uh, would would uh, send new records coming out and stuff over to me, and he was kind of grooming me, I suppose. Um, so the next thing that I did was that I took to him was was UK and he he said, "Yeah, I like it, but I don't like it And it's it's kind of nearly there, but it's not there so he passed on it, and we went we ended up ended up going to polygram with u k um however about three years later uh in nineteen eighty one um when I said that, that I was thinking of working with Steve howe, and that we um <clears throat> that we had a a certain drummer that was interested in joining our ranks, which was Carl Palmer, and uh, suddenly he started uh, he started paying attention a bit more, and um, that's how that, that's how Asia came about. Really, the 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 band coming together was incredibly organic. When the record company got involved, they started sending people along to audition for the band, and that wasn't fun at all. We already knew that we had the band. When the four of us were standing in one room, it just it felt it looked and it seemed like a band you know we could play um, so we as soon as as soon as we'd shaken off all the sort of uh, management and record company suggestions, we just at that point found a great producer for us, which was Mike Stone, and we moved into the studio. I was fortunate that I had a pocket full of Songs at that point, Um, because most of the bands that I'd worked with, I'd I'd always been stockpiling songs. And um, when I met with Jeff Downs, suddenly my output doubled. We had we had ready-made songs when we went in to do that first Asia record. We had quite a lot of material, Um, and a lot of it was sounding quite um, commercial. So, um, we had a great producer, as I said, and we had an A&R man who was willing to kill for us. And, uh, well, he was willing to die or to kill for us. Even. <laughs> Actually, what you need is one, you need the one guy who's willing to pull every stroke, pull every string, you know, and, and go the extra mile for you every time. Because the way that the music industry is, it, uh, it can be quite cynical. And, um, well, we were fortunate. We had the one guy that believed that, that uh, everything was going to be okay, and it was. You know, um, I suppose if you look at it, uh, uh, we, we had too much success too soon with Asia. We probably, probably would have been better if the first three albums had sold in reverse order. If if the, the first one had sold as many as the third one had, and the second one had done the same as it had, right? And the first and the third album had been the big one. Then we'd probably be still be together. Uh, from that time, and um, they wouldn't have needed to reform; would have carried on. But because of the success of the first one, um, the industry declares that uh, that the decrees that um, that you must surpass that with the second one. So, uh, in the the way that, that people were thinking in the industry then, um, it's take lethal weapon three must sell sell more than lethal weapon two.
2: Right, it's a, a fallacious uh, argument. That's
0: the way it goes, isn't yeah. of course it doesn't work that way. Sure, you know? um, especially with music. You know, we, we had a hard core of a hard core of like two million people when went out and bought the second record, but uh, that wasn't enough for the, because it hadn't outsold the first one. You know, there was a little bit of a um, a bit of a fracas within the record company, and we, well, within the entire sort of uh, corporate structure of the West Coast, you know, um, so heads had to roll. You know, mine was one of them. Um, it didn't help that I was behaving extremely um extremely unfortunate manner at the time. Um, but those were my own personal problems and they would have happened anyway. If I'd been a postman or a bus, bus driver, I'd still have had the same personal problems. I know that now looking back on it um but uh, <clears throat> i mean the fact- the fact is that we have reformed albeit twenty five years later but uh we're all a bit wiser and a bit, a bit more tolerant, I think, a bit more mature, possibly sure um, so uh it's worked it's worked this time, and we haven't had that enormous pressure from the outside, which is great. we've been allowed to be who we are, you know um as soon as you get any kind of modicum of success, you've got a whole army of people plucking around you, telling you what you're going to look like, what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, you know, um, how you're going to be for the next photograph session, and what, what TV you've got this afternoon. It's just, you know, no, my it's not Well, that's just supposed to be a musician, you know. Right. Um, but it turns you into a product, uh, that kind of success. So, although we all want that, um, it can turn around and bite us. So uh, yeah,
2: It comes it, with
0: it, a price. It comes with a price, exactly. It's a double-edged sword. Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we learned our lessons, I think, that first time around. Uh, I and mean, the band spluttered on in various guises from 1985 through to when we reformed, but um, it, people always knew that the only real Asia was the original four.
2: So, sure. Um how is how is the tour going for you now? Oh, it's brilliant. Love it, love it. You know, we're we're very, very
0: comfortable in our own skin. We're very happy being Asia, put it that way. We're not we don't pretend to be Emerson Leighton Palmer, we don't pretend to be King Crimson, or oh, yes, we are just Asia. And most people right now know us as that. And that's <laughs> so satisfying, you know. Twenty five years later, um it, it, because we always... I mean, there was a period when when the first album was selling out of the box, you know, and there was a period... Of, the second album was coming out in 1982-83 when we sort of dwarfed what, what our predecessors had done. Um, but then it sort of went back to normal and these huge, gigantic bands that we'd all come from sort of loomed back into the picture again. Um, and now... I think Asia has its own time, and and it's uh, <clears throat> we've all gone back to to other bands and done what we had to do, and Asia's still going. Um, you know, some of the others have fallen by the wayside, and we're still going, and we're still selling tickets, and we're still making records, and I think that's that's the wonderful thing. You know, that Asia's found, finally, found its feet and found its niche uh, 30 years after we, we first of it.
2: That's great. And uh, do you? Um, is there any end in sight or do you, do you think it will continue to march on for, for quite no, some we time? Have,
0: um, the, at the moment we have a five-year plan. Um, I mean, my, I, I live very much um, one day at a time these days. I have to. But I'm allowed to make plans in my head. And we know that uh, we have enough stuff to keep us going for the next five years that's for sure. Mm-hmm. If we want it. Um, great So, uh, and what happens then at the end of the next five years? I don't know. That. The goalposts have constantly moved. I thought that 30 was going to be too old to be, a, you know, a working musician when I was 24.
2: But, sure. Uh,
0: and then 40 came along, and then 50 came along, and now 60 came along, and you know. And here um, you are. I, I don't think one can keep up the physical pace much beyond 65. I don't. I really don't think you can. You know. But there are other ways, uh, Ben. Uh, by the time I get to 65, which is another four years, the whole thing may have changed again, you know? Sure. Like, the, the media as we know it um, could, be, could be a completely different ballgame. So, really, it's best for me to keep my focus on what I'm doing tonight. <laughs>
2: Absolutely.
0: So that's as far as I can see, really. But, yeah, there, there is a long time. We we are getting on better than we've ever on before as a band. We have regular meetings. That uh, where things are discussed, and so nothing has time to fester. You know, nothing. Everything is transparent, and um, we're as far as I can see, we're a very, very healthy band.
2: That's great. That's really great to hear. Now you're uh, coming to our fair city on uh, August 15th uh, to That's right. Carnegie Hall of, of Homestead. Um, yeah. That's a that's a small uh, a small intimate venue. It's not real small, but it's it's intimate and it's a it's a nice place. I've I've seen other uh, acts there.
0: Yeah, I've heard people talk about it. I've never played them, so I've all been I think, but, Right. Um Pittsburgh. Right. I'm looking forward to this very much.
2: So, yeah, definitely. Now, if we want to find more about the, uh, the original Asia, is the best uh, place to go the website originalasia dot com. Is that the uh, yeah.
0: yeah
2: authoritative yeah. source?
0: Yeah, that's right
2: that's that's good okay well um yeah, everybody check that site out it is a good site i've i've uh, been looking at that um and also tickets for the show um locally can be bought at uh, carnegieconcerts.com so um if uh, anyone's uh would like to go see this fine band definitely go check that out um it's it's proves to be a a great evening of music i know well john thank you very much for uh for coming on the podcast you're and welcome. Uh, we thank you
0: very much. appreciate thank
2: you. you taking right. the time you're, you're, thank you Is definitely an interesting interview, and uh, I uh, I love to uh, hear you talk about your career, and definitely totally enjoy your music. Good, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Yeah.
1: only time will tell from asia again their website the original members of asia are back together the website original com. they'll be coming to the carnegie library this sunday the 15th of august uh gonna be playing all the hits i'm sure you can find more information on us at ironcityrocks.com or follow us on twitter or facebook at uh, forward slash iron city rocks on both of those we hope you enjoy the show and we'll talk to you next time